Did you know that slowing aging by a couple of percent would save more money than eradicating cancer? There are many reasons to be passionate about aging research, but this is perhaps the major one. To get out this message, we decided to start a podcast at VitaDAO. I'm Camille, also known as the Aging Scientist on Twitter, and I will be hosting this podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Heidi Pack, who is a postdoctoral researcher at UT Southwestern Medical Center, where she studies time-restricted feeding. So, of course, we talked about fasting today, time-restricted feeding, caloric restriction, but also pigs, mice, and celery. It was a very informative and fun podcast. Hope you will like it. I really like when people do mouse lifespan studies because they're hard, but they're also very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, well, I guess uh, my work, the media kind of portrays it as controversial in a sense. And that wasn't really the intention of my study at all. It's slightly maybe controversial. I remember I wrote a blog post about this a couple years ago, and I have to apologize because I sounded very critical in the way I wrote <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is, um, a lot of people, when they see that paper, think I'm promoting fasting over calorie restriction. And that wasn't the intention at all. Um, when I first found out about, um, well, made my observation in calorie restricted animals, was that there's this hidden component in mice, which I believe other people have noticed before me, um, that there's this fasting component uh, when you place them on a calorie restricted an uh, in the calorie restriction re uh, regimen. So what that means is um, they essentially get hungry over time and eat all their daily portion within two hours. And so that means they're not eating for the rest of the day. Um, so I just really wanted to dissociate, hey, it, does fasting play any role? or daily fast in any role in this effect that we see in calorie restricted animals? Or um, can you essentially just um, place it down to just restriction of calories that's mediating this effect? So the goal of the paper itself was to say, look, everyone who does calorie restriction research, there's a fasting component and we should really look into this and it would really, um, kind of bring all the scientists together in terms of um, like having a consensus in terms of calorie restriction uh, feeding protocols. Because, you know, I'm sure you're aware um, there's another feeding protocol called every other day feeding, um, which they're given two days worth of portion essentially and fasting for one day and then eating for another day. Um, that's usually how it pans out. But um, there's a great nature paper or nature communications paper that came out a few years ago that actually examined the effect of every other day feeding uh, versus once a day feeding. And both actually extend lifespan, but only the once a day fed CR mice um, have extension of health, which is ultimately what we're looking for, that extension of health pe uh, period. And what's so great about this paper was that they looked at 200 different phenotypes. So even more exhaustive than what I did. Um, and so I think that daily fast that doesn't go beyond a 24 hour cycle 
is very important in, in terms of mediating some of these effects that we see in calorie-restricted animals, uh, but we don't really understand it quite to the extent that everyone um, wants to know. Uh, so by having a uniform protocol for calorie restriction is, I think, the first step of doing these studies and then really understanding where uh, what we're seeing. Yeah, these things often turn out much more difficult than we expect in the beginning. Yeah. This reminds me, like, even caloric restriction itself, when you try to understand the mechanism and how robust it is, um, as we have recently found out, there are actually a lot of interesting controversies. And so you're studying the fasting component of caloric restriction. But first, maybe um, we can briefly talk about caloric restriction itself, right? Because yeah. We know it works very well in certain mouse strains, like the Black Six that is um, used by a lot of labs. Mm -hmm. But in some mouse strains, it does not work. Do you have any idea why that could be, or like, have you um, ever looked into this? So um, I've only worked with two strains of mice. Um, of course, it's just the DBA, which are notorious for being insulin resistant later in life. Um, and then the standard B6 mice. Uh, what we see is calorie restriction has some effect in DBAs in terms of, you know, body composition and um, maintaining some of the phenotypes of calorie restriction. But uh, things like insulin sensitivity, which they're notorious for not having, um, you don't really see it, but it, it is also sex dependent. And Sarah Mitchell and uh, Rafa DeCabo in 2016 did a lovely study on um the lifespan of these mice as well. Um, so we didn't proceed with the lifespan studies, but as far as doing like heterogeneous mice, I, I don't really know too much about studies out there that, that have done these. These are quite hard to do because you need thousands of mice <laughs> um, to conduct these studies. Um, and one reasoning for why um, they're not responding the same. So my hypothesis is um, this, from what I see is that um, it seems like different mice, at, at least in mice, respond to a fast differently versus just restricting calories itself. So when you just restrict the calories, it seems like more or less they respond the same. And now this starts to deviate from each other once you put in the fasting component. So, um, you know, it has, it comes down to, personal genetic makeup. Um, and a lot of people are talking about um, personalized nutrition, personalized medicine now, uh, which is very important to uh, acknowledge, but these are very difficult studies to do. That's actually a good point. So it could be that some mice, they react less well to fasting because it's a big stressor and maybe it would depend on how and when you do the caloric restriction and maybe then even the strains which are so-called unresponsive would then mm -hmm. respond better to CR. Yeah. And then the current lab I'm in right now puts even another layer on top of the fasting component. It's time of day feeding. So morning fed versus night fed, which adds on to the complexity. So these feeding regimens, when you consider all the variables, it becomes very complex because you need all these different groups once you get down to trying to understand the mechanism of what we're actually seeing. Yeah, it got really complicated recently. So we have the impact of calories, the impact of fasting, and the impact of 
timing and circadian rhythm that all seem to be important. Yes. And it's probably, there are probably more things even because as some people have argued that I know, for example, that um, the black six mice that people usually work with during ad libitum, they're kind of already maybe slightly overweight because they eat so much. I don't know if that has been your experience, how the mice in your lab are, if you would agree or disagree with that. Um, I do agree. They do have a tendency to become obesogenic, um, even under regular chow diet. Um, like in my experience, when they were like two years old, some of them reached like 50 grams, which is quite heavy for a B6 mouse. It, um, it actually looked like we were feeding them a high fat diet, even though we weren't. They were just on this chow diet for a uh, uh, most of their life and it doesn't seem to be because they're like eating more like they're just gaining weight but um, of course we place them on sedentary conditions so it's not um, we don't give them access to a wheel so maybe that has some kind of impact in their waking um, and I know uh, some other labs will see that increase in waking and then towards later in life it will dip off. But I think that um, depends on the condition as well. Um, so like I said, they didn't have a wheel. So perhaps like that wheel contributes to some extent in that. But mine uh, stayed obesogenic uh, for the majority of their life um, without ever like having that dip in weight. Um, so is it a good model in terms of looking at these diet studies? Um, I'm gonna say 50-50. <laughs> It's a start. Um, it's a model where you could start and then proceed from there. Um, now, I know some protocols uh, will restrict uh, the ad libitum mice uh, so that they're not truly ad libitum, um, so that they do not become obesogenic. But then that's introducing another variable in terms of what you're studying. So, I mean, no protocol is perfect. We try to make it as best as we can and see how we could compare these um, changes between these mice. Yeah, it's never perfect. And there are so many variables. But yeah. overall, I do think uh, we struggle with those so-called unhealthy controls that sometimes the mice um, are, are short-lived or obese or have other issues. Yeah, um, I do often see it. And um, I actually like papers that uh, represent their data in terms of raw raw values instead of a percent, <laughs> uh, like percent change from the control group so that you could really assess what you're seeing. Are you comparing against a short-lived animal, like you said, or are we truly seeing like um, just a average lived animal and then it does extend lifespan? Um, the funny thing is my, uh, my the animal facility at University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, all the mice, for some reason, live much longer compared to other institutions, like even even under like a high fat diet, um, which is crazy to me. Maybe now there's another variable, then maybe microbiome has something to do with it, which I don't want to get into at all, because that's another layer, layer of complexity. But yeah, so it could vary by institution, like how the animal is taken care of during its lifespan and not just um, the diet itself. So, um, and there's some arguments against like laboratory setting truly, can you like replicate these findings in a human setting when we're so controlling the, la in the mice in the laboratory setting? So 
we I do think we need to start thinking about all these variables when conducting this research. Yeah, and, and the fasting window is something that people didn't think of before. Um, we'll get into this um, in a moment. I just wanted to mention, so I was looking at um, some of the fasting papers uh, during my preparation. I noticed uh, the paper you did with Dudley Lumming, you actually had like really, it was among the longest lived um, mice in all those fasting papers. So I think you did quite <laughs> well in the husbandry department. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. What's the magic? <laughs> well, like I said, uh, for some reason, the mice in our facility for some, for some reason live longer. Um, I mean, I, I did have great animal um, research facility staff. Um, so I often interacted with them all the time, just so like if any of the mice appeared sickly or anything, um, they would notify me right away. So I think a good relationship with the animal facility staff, um, was helpful as well. And, um, caging conditions, I don't, I don't quite know, um, from, institution to institution, but I would say compared to the one I'm using currently, uh, the one in Wisconsin was much larger. <laughs> so I don't know if that makes a difference, but yeah, um, my control mice lived quite a bit actually for even um, the B6 line. So I I think it would have been cool if I could like, if, if I could have even extended their lifespan for um, unknown reasons. <laughs> Yeah, and I think a lot of people who don't work, who don't work with mice, don't realize how variable they are and how much heterogeneity is that we have no control mm -hmm. over. Yeah, even within the big B6 line, they're different. <laughs> but I still think um, by looking at different models and different studies, different mice, we can still find common themes that we can translate to humans. And maybe, maybe fasting is one of them. And could we... Um, could you tell me a bit more, like, why do you think fasting matters? Maybe let's start with the basics. Like, what is it? How, how why would it be important? So I kind of want to change, um, instead of using the term fasting, I would like to say interval be between meals. So I think that was one of the issues with my paper and why people um, thought about it as me pushing forward fasting instead of <laughs> like, I had like an agenda for passing, but um, my thing was like the interval between the meals uh, that a calorie restricted animal uh, received this meal each day. So I'm not pushing for longer fasting or anything like that. And of course, actually um, prolonging fast, like a 24 hour fast for a mouse is extremely stressful. Um, you would probably equate that to somewhere around four days of fasting for humans um, if if you needed a number. So um, if I wanted to translate that in the human setting, I wouldn't take it to heart in terms of doing these calorie-restricted studies um, in the fasting duration. What I want to focus on is um, now these animals are have essentially adapted to fasting, this daily fast, but now we don't really understand the mechanism of what's happening to these animals. Are they actually fasting like we think because they're not eating or have their metabolism essentially rewired to adapt to this fasting? And so 
we kind of, I think we need to revisit fasting, like how we perceive fasting in general. Um, a lot of the fasting studies were done, I would say back in the 70s or something, um, or even longer. And we've kind of dismissed on what we understand about fasting. Um, so like most of the studies now, they use fasting as a tool, but not really study the effects of fasting um, or where it's leading. So those studies, I don't think have been done rigorously yet. Um, so I guess to get back to the point um, now, fasting, <laughs> how to define it, a period when people are not eating, I guess that's the simplest definition. Um, now, fasting has existed for uh, hundreds and hundreds or maybe thousands of years. Um, uh, we, we know about Ramadan fasting. Um, it's culturally ingrained. Um, some people fast for uh, meditative purposes. <laughs> some people fast for other reasons. But I, I don't think there's a good, like, one definition for fasting. Because, I mean, some people could think fasting is just, you know, I haven't eaten for 10 hours, <laughs> so I'm fasting. Or some people could not be eating for uh, three days and um, essentially they're fasting. So yeah, it's a very broad term. Um, same for calorie restriction. It's a very broad term too. All you have to do is restrict your daily caloric intake. And that's basically the definition, but you could do that through fasting as well because you're decreasing your caloric intake. Yeah, presumably different people will react differently. They will be fast their metabolism might be fasted earlier because of some biological differences or they might respond more to a small change in calories yeah and also like i mean this study hasn't come out yet um, i'm trying to get it published soon is that when you start the fast matters as well so um at least for mice, um, if you start the fat, even for avid mice, um, not just calorie restricted animals, but if you start the fast at night uh, for a mouse during that's during their active phase. So when I say night, it's like around 9 to 10 p.m. They actually have better glucose homeostasis in terms of being able to regulate their glucose levels uh, during this fast, even though you fast them in similar length of time compared to an animal that where you start the fast, let's say like at 10 a.m. in the morning. And so there's these components <laughs> that we haven't really thought of um, that now I'm trying to introduce um, to like further these studies. Um, uh, that we need to understand before we like jump on board with all these like fasting regimens um, to really understand what's happening. It's kind of cool to see that people are now looking into fasting and in a very rigorous methodical way. And I've, I've kind of dismissed fasting myself. Um, as you mentioned, there are these studies from the seventies or like um, these old studies. And I got the impression like often they introduce fasting and weight loss at the same time. So people would attribute it to caloric restriction and just dismiss it out of hand. But then your paper kind of changed the way I view it because you had in the beginning this beautiful explanation that kind of calorie restricted mice also self-impose a short eating window. So it could obviously play a role. Is this, is this correct? Yes. Yes. So um, that is definitely correct. Um, now, 
I guess you could consider calorie-restricted animals, time-restricted uh, fed animals more on the more extreme end compared to like an eight or 12-hour window. So now they have a two-hour window, but they do it to themselves. And um, yeah, I, I mean, like the whole intermittent fasting, <laughs> somehow that became super popular um, because for some people, they claim it like works but I don't think there's any uh studies out there that really show um that this really works in people obviously it, you it's it gets very hard to control all the conditions once you do like human studies because are they actually um uh, going about doing this correctly or not um I know a Sachin Panda's group uh they showed human studies and I guess uh, the compliance rate is it it becomes low once you restrict the time <laughs> to uh, uh, eight hours I believe but it's more manageable and it's like 10 plus hours so by then are you does it really have beneficial effects when you're only doing your uh, eating window within a 12-hour period or should you do it even um, further don't know <laughs> and also um, does this even is there a sexual dimorphic response? Like, the, is fasting beneficial for women versus men? We don't know. <laughs> um, so more study needs to be done in that area. I totally agree. We don't know. And one of the reasons is that it's difficult to study. And uh, studies we have are sometimes flawed in the sense that we have a lot of observational studies, but then these people were not randomized. There might be different reasons for why they're fasting. Maybe they're fasting because they're sick or maybe they're fasting because they want to be healthy. And there are so many biases in this kind of study. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, the question that I always like to ask whenever they conduct these studies, um, so they've only restrict the timing component, but um, the nutrition status is never in there. And that's very hard to record, obviously. But um, now the question becomes, can you do this? Would you get the same effect if you did, that with, did this with whole foods versus like an ultra processed food? <laughs> um, would you have the same end results? Or no, basically nutrition matters at the end of the day. So um, these are other things to consider in human studies before just jumping into like the uh, time restricted feeding window. <laughs> that kind of mindset. You know, once really tested that, but the intuition is obviously that fasting on a healthier diet should be perhaps more beneficial. Yeah. Honestly, I think if you compare two unhealthy diets, people with two, two of the same diets, and then you put them on time-restricted eating, uh, the person with the time-restricted eating will do much better. Um, mostly because now they're, most likely they're calorically restricting eventually. <laughs> um, and then you're not eating at a time when you're not supposed to be. So um, you add two components in there uh, to an unhealthy diet. So, but when you start comparing individuals that have a healthy diet versus an unhealthy diet and then pl uh, place them on these time-restricted eating uh, window, uh, groups, then I think the analysis gets more complicating. And you say that the onset of fasting could also matter. Can you elaborate on that? 
Yeah, so this um, this hasn't been published yet, um, hope, hopefully soon. <laughs> uh, uh, so I conducted a study where I now, I because of the issue of we don't really understand fasting, I wanted to see if how these animals respond to a fast, um, whether they're fed in the morning. So what I'm talking about is calorie restricted animals that are fed in the morning. So start of the light cycle uh, versus calorie restricted animal fed at night, which is start of the dark cycle. Um, and then have just a standard ad libitum, ad libitum control group. So now I have four groups, <laughs> morning fed group, night fed group, both have Adlib and CR. And so when I conducted these studies, what I ultimately found was calorie restriction actually helps what either way for both animals fed in the morning or nighttime. And why that's relevant is morning is basically saying you're eating um, at midnight for humans. <laughs> um, but uh, calorie restriction itself helps mitigate the negative effects of an ad libitum diet, um, whether fed in the morning or nighttime. Second thing is now um, to look at the fasting effect. Um, obviously, since they're fed at different times, I started the fast at different times, but it looks like the nighttime fed animals do significantly better in terms of maintaining blood glucose, even for the ad lib group. Um, that means they have generally a lower fasting blood glucose um, and it's able to be maintained without a dramatic drop and um, they have better glucose tolerance when you start the fast at night. I'm not sure why. Maybe uh, it's probably like a circadian rhythm control in terms of the hormones that are regulated circadianly and um, you're feeding all synchronizing at the same time. So there is a better effect. Um, but I can't, that's just me uh, speculating. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, there, there is definitely a timing component to this. Mice are active at night, right? So that would be their natural feeding schedule to do it at night? Yes. So um, usually mice will eat probably their largest portion um, after like an hour or two at the onset of the dark period. And then um, they'll eat little meals throughout the night. So uh, this is for an ad-lib mouse, obviously. Um, so somewhere between 60 to 80% of their food consumption will be during this dark phase. And then um, mice don't truly sleep like humans do. Um, they'll, they'll have little naps here and there. So they'll wake up and then snack a little bit during the day. And um, so the fast would happen right after their main meal for the nighttime study. Morning, obviously not so much. It's, it'll probably be their last meal and then you start the fast. So there's that difference. Um, to tease that apart, it, it becomes very complex. And so um, more studies will need to be done to do that, to understand that. Right. So your work is similar in approach, I suppose, to the studies that Joseph Takahashi has published, where he recently showed that I think um, mice that are restricted at night 
fare better and live longer. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, that's the funny thing. He was like working on this uh, study. His group was working on this study while I was working on some of these things. Um, they were able to show it more elegantly because they had automated feeders. Um, so they uh, conducted this massive study where um, they had calorie restricted group time I would say it was like a time restricted group um, that was matched to calorie restricted animals, I believe. And then they had another calorie restricted animal group where they're fed throughout the day. So what they call it was a CR spread. And essentially what they found out was, yes, um, even under calorie restriction, it seems like um, there's a very small extension of life um if you do a spread but um a very large portion of the increase in lifespan were uh in the once a day fed cr mouse um that were fed at nighttime i believe they had 35 percent increase so that's quite a bit um and that was even uh, further upon like the morning fed cr mice i believe that one was around 20 to 25% or something like that. So even on top of that, if you feed them at the right time of the day, um, they will have a lifespan extension. And I think, and um, the lab is currently investigating why that is. I see, so you're working on it independently. Yeah, so, so the fasting one, I was like, I was not working on it in the context of circadian rhythm. It was more like, fasting driven response, I was interested in that. And um, the nighttime component came about just um, more or less of some other things that were happening. Um, but it ended up being like somewhat of a similar idea. <laughs> His was more circadian rhythm focused, mine was more fasting focused. So, um, but I'm trying to intersect both of those components now in terms of understanding um, what's happening in these mice. You know, as they say, great minds think alike. So <laughs> it happens that people work on similar projects in parallel. Yeah. All right. Maybe we can talk a bit more about your paper. I hope I won't get too, too technical. Um, so the fasting paper, you had like, multiple groups or different fasting regimes. Could you talk about these? Yeah, so um, so when I first started this study, <laughs> I didn't have fancy automated feeders. So I didn't really know how to address um, how to get around the fasting part. I just needed these mice to eat all the time um, without fasting, but still be calorically restricted. So um, I discovered this paper uh, from uh, Steve Simpson's group. It was the paper from Salon BA um, in 2014, possibly, um, where they did this massive study of like different macronutrient composition, different uh, energy density uh, to conduct these studies and um, how they um, place their mice on the caloric restricted um, group was essentially using dietary dilution. And uh, this is often used in flies too, uh, to conduct studies for calorie restriction. They will dilute the diet essentially. <laughs> um, and so I was like, 
okay, this is a great diet to, you know, really eliminate the fasting part. So I have a diluted added group. I have, but then um, that wasn't enough, I guess, in terms of, well, how realistic is this in the human setting? <laughs> so um, what I, I made another group called a meal fed CR group, which essentially is kind of like a time restricted feeding group within a 12 hour window, but they're given three even portions throughout the 12 hour um, period but they are 30% calorically restricted as well. And then you have like the classical ones that they fed CR mice. So essentially I have four groups there. And then to really get at the fasting question, um, I had to develop a fifth feeding paradigm where essentially the mouse ate as much as an ad-lib group but fasted as long as a CR group. And so that's uh, actually my time-restricted uh, uh, time restricted ad-lib group. So, so essentially I have five feeding <laughs> um, feeding groups and trying to dissociate fasting from calories from these groups. Just briefly, uh, because you mentioned flies, so does the diluted diet, the diluted CR work well in flies or are there any issues with that? So how it's done in flies is they, I would say it's closer to protein restriction um, because they decrease the amount of yeast in fly food um, to implement calorie restriction. So, um, I mean, it works well. <laughs> um, and a lot of it has, uh, I would say, now you're looking more into the diluted added group in, in terms of flies, unless you're doing the once a day feeding for flies as well, which is extremely difficult. So I hear I'm not a fly person, but um, since their food is goopy, <laughs> um, it's very hard to uh, place them on a fasting regimen unless you like feed them uh, little increments, but um, that's almost impossible to do. So um, yeah, uh, I don't think we've really worked out the difference between flies and mice in terms of these diets. Um, all I know is that they're more, it's closer to protein restriction. Okay. So yeah, I see. I guess you probably can't compare them directly that well. Yeah. But yeah, going back to the many groups you have. So it's interesting. I learned a lot about fasting reading this paper. So to summarize in a way you can have and ad libitum mouse and add fasting to it. Or you can have a calorie restricted mouse and remove kind of the fasting component. And that gives you like many different approaches to study the problem. Yeah, I would, I would say, I mean, I recognize the limitation with this dietary dilution. And first of all, of course, a lot of the comments were basically, are they essentially the same diet when you place replace it? Um, Technically, no, um, but we make the assumption that uh, they're not taking in energy uh, from this diet because they're in most of it is indigestible cellulose. And then um, uh, going from there. So that's a technical limitation from the diet itself. Uh, second thing, of course, now they're eating a huge bulk of food. <laughs> so does bulk matter at all in terms of eliciting some of these phenotypes? Um, so that's another thing. Third thing was, which we kind of tested for, was is the gut integrity um, okay after this dietary dilution? As far as I know, the absorbance from the intestine is uh, is not damaged or impaired compared to an ad-lib mouse. Um, 
I would say CR mice does far off better in terms of that. Um, and maybe fasting is very important for intestinal health. So those are some of the interesting things that came about from using this diet. Yeah, it's a very interesting dietary approach where you replace a large part of the diet with cellulose. And it, for me, it raised a lot of interesting questions, which some of you addressed, like what does it do to the gut or the intestine? Um, did you also look at the histology and if, if it kind of might cause cancer or like enlargement of the intestine if there are any other issues no so actually we did uh, check out the so when we were doing a gross necropsy on these mice on like what they died of um i never saw like major issues from the intestine itself um i didn't do histology um which would have been nice but um histology wasn't there but in terms of cancer they died of I mean, half of them died of like liver cancer, seems to be prevalent in B6 to die of liver cancer. Um, but I didn't really see cancer in the intestine at all. All right. That was always a question on my mind. But perhaps more importantly, so um, it kind of also raises the um, idea that the process of, I don't know, chewing and getting the food into the stomach could also be related to nutrient sensing and the CR effects, doesn't it? Yeah, um, I mean, I think a lot of people out there who study the gut brain axis are really trying to figure this out. It's like, is the signal coming, like some of the metabolic health effects coming from in the intestine directly? Or is it a signal from the intestine to the brain <laughs> to the rest of the uh, other tissues? And so, and of course, those are really hard studies to conduct dissociating from the brain. Um, but yeah, there might be an effect because of the whole eating process, even before uh, the, the digestive process. Now, in retrospect, um, do you think that one protocol is preferable? So the diluted CR versus the meal fat, um, do you think there are differences or you think they're all similar? I, I think there are differences. Um, will I say one protocol is better than the other? No. Um, but how you what you're addressing so the question you're asking it's very important to reveal what protocol you use so so that the next researchers can interpret your research properly in terms of what you're doing and comparing it to their own research so i i believe that's where the issue comes about um and i'm trying to uh trying to get this out there on like, oh, what is the optimum CR protocol? Because so many people do it so differently. And that's why we have this discrepancy within this field of people saying it might be this, it might be that. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't say one protocol is better, but I definitely think uh, different protocols leads to different results. Yeah, I'm wondering if um, the CR with the diluted diet is applicable to humans. Actually, I kind of experimented with that myself. I don't know if you've ever heard of those um, zero calorie sauces from Walden Farms. It's a very interesting thing. <laughs> I guess I guess what else is in the sauce, right? <laughs> yeah, but um, I would say the diluted diet is equivalent to eating celery. <laughs> Celery. where yeah where you're not getting any nutrients you're just like eating bulk <laughs> but i guess you're getting hydrated at the same time so but yeah um that's how i see diluted uh diet um i guess it gets 
really complex once you add other components in there where they say it's zero calories, but there's other chemical makeup into it. Yeah, I, I like the idea of celery. Now you can imagine celery with those zero calorie sauces, which are actually really horribly disgusting. That could be a new fat diet. <laughs> I, no, no one should go on celery diet. I think people could die from that. <laughs> The optimum is you can't be malnourished on VCR diets. We didn't say anything. Please don't go on the <laughs> celery diet. Yeah, I mean, you're right to emphasize optimal nutrition. It's actually so the people who are self-experimenting with caloric restriction, they also always emphasize that it should be C-R-O-N, caloric restriction with optimal nutrition, just to be on the safe side. Yeah, because by then now you're introducing malnutrition, which has a lot of down, a, a lot of side effects. So calorie restriction has, that's why calorie restriction, I think is so difficult is that you need to reduce your caloric intake and have all the nutritional needs. Um, <laughs> and that's very hard to plan out in general. I think um, I would say most people will agree is like it's very hard to navigate the nutrition world it's it's like you don't know what you need <laughs> in a daily serving um the government will tell you like oh you should eat this and this and um even then they're still revising every five years or so so um it's very difficult to keep up um especially on a busy schedule too so uh yeah i at the end i don't think calorie restriction is like doable in the general public. Um, but why we study calorie restriction is to understand the mechanism of it. And hopefully we could develop other interventions that's more doable or um, develop, you know, drugs that might target certain pathways to elicit the same effect. I think that also explains part of the popularity of time-restricted feeding research and fasting research, right? Because it could be more applicable to humans. Yeah, I think that's the big appeal for time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting because it seems like more people, a lot more people than the calorie-restricted group can um, can adapt this within their uh, daily schedule. Um, now, I guess the question really is, can you do this forever? <laughs> um, that's the other downside of calorie restriction is that you kind of need to do it. It's like a lifelong process. Um, once you get off of it, now you're reverting back to maybe the original or maybe worse because your energy status was low to begin with and then you increase it. So um, yeah, uh, I guess in retrospect, can you change your entire lifestyle for the rest of your life? <laughs> yeah, because calorie restriction is a chronic long-term commitment. Yeah. And it's actually a very good question whether fasting, even when it's temporary or done from time to time, could be beneficial. Yeah, um, I think, I, I guess that's a Walter Longo's research. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but... Um, I believe he's the one who said like you'll need to need to fast a certain period within one month and you'll still have the same beneficial effect um you don't have to continuously do it every single day so um i guess we need to know more about that in terms of um maybe once a month is not too bad compared to you know <laughs> 
a one uh, like a two week period so um yeah in a way this whole idea about fasting briefly and then detoxing your body is a bit of a pop science notion but it's actually not implausible if you think in a sense the senolytic studies show that like a short one-time treatment can have a long-lasting effect let's say if the CR or fasting would clear senescent cells I'm not saying that it does that would provide a biologic explanation for like long-term benefits yeah um so I kind of see fasting like uh I know this is like kind of an offshoot, but like how we, we sleep. <laughs> so like during when we're sleeping, um, there's essential process processes that can happen when we're sleeping, um, getting rid of certain plaques in the brain as one of them. Um, and so fasting, I think has similar implication in terms of if you need that period of rest for these metabolically active organs to repair itself um, from all the damage. Um, but when you keep having nutrients come in constantly, uh, there's no time to do that damage. So that leads to more damage. Um, and so it's how I see fasting is like a time for them to like recuperate, <laughs> uh, regenerate themselves to um, uh, receive the next set of nutrients that's coming in. How did you mention sleep? I just came up with a new weird research idea. Like if my sleep so short, as you mentioned, could this be related to their lower lifespans? I don't know. Some, I, I mean, sleep is a very complex thing. Like I learned that giraffes only sleep two hours a day. So, and they, it, they have a longer lifespan than mice. So, and, and I, like some animals don't need as much sleep they might have different um metabolic processes like some animals need to sleep more than 15 hours a day <laughs> and so yeah sleep is very complex like um i've started to listen to a lot of sleep researchers and i'm just like oh man there's a whole bunch of things i never thought about when you talk about sleep <laughs> so yeah Mice, I would say they they have a lower uh, lifespan just because of their high metabolic rate. Yeah, mice are really quite short-lived. Even, even for their size, they're unusually short-lived, which is a, a bit of a disadvantage of that model. Mm -hmm. Have you considered working with something else than mice? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I sometimes <laughs> when I work with mice, I am like, oh, man. I, I need to get a different model organism. <laughs> Actually, um, so I, I started to like think about this when because I started to work with fasting or have this idea of fasting. And I'm not sure if mice are like the best model for fasting in terms of understanding or translating it to a human setting. Um, I mean, I love mice work uh, because uh, they've given me so much, but now, um, in terms of fasting, though, um, you know, if you fast a mouse for longer than three days, they'll die. <laughs> They're just not capable of sustaining life after three days of fasting. So um, I, I would say I would like to work with an animal model that mimics more closer to humans, possibly pigs. <laughs> but now it comes down to like cost. 
because pigs are extremely expensive to work with. Pigs, dogs, cats. I think there are a lot of cool long-lived models. <laughs> And yeah. as you mentioned, the problem with mice is they have a high metabolic rate. And if you fast them, they lose a lot of body weight. So that raises the question, how, how can we translate the findings from mice to humans? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I'm, I'm hoping, um, I mean, if you think about it, like C. elegans studies have given us a lot of information about um, within the aging field, even though they're very short-lived, they're not even mammals, and um, you can barely see them with a naked eye. So in that context, I think um, all of these models are powerful to a certain extent. Now, I guess it comes down to the question is like, yes, is this, can we just like mimic this in humans? Uh, which I don't think, I think we need to take a step back in terms of right before doing human studies, uh, we need like a middle ground <laughs> in terms of saying this will work. Um, but I think mice will give us a lot of useful information in terms of like how the metabolism works. under um, certain conditions. Yeah, the idea that you mentioned of working with pigs kind of brings us back to what we initially talked about science funding. I assume it will not be easy to get grant money to do fasting research in pigs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah first of all, pig, one pig is very expensive. But the advantage of having pig studies is you don't need a lot of animals, um, mostly because you could draw quite a bit of blood uh, from one animal. Uh, compared to a mouse, which you only have very limited sample. Um, but yeah, and I don't even know. And I think it's like uh, specific to the site if they're even capable of having that type of research. So um, probably would need like collaborators in general to do those types of studies. But overall, yes, very expensive. <laughs> I mean, those small pig breeds are used for some kinds of research. I just think they're not very common. So, Yeah. <laughs> also, I mean, I guess I think we stick with mice because we understand them much better in terms of their genetic makeup. Like B6, we know their whole genome, basically. Uh, we know all the phenotypes. Um, that they're supposed to produce. Uh, pigs, we have no idea. <laughs> yep, you would have to start from uh, nothing. So uh, that would be quite a bit of work. But I mean, uh, there's a lot of potential there um, in terms of translating that to humans if we went into larger organisms. But I mean, for calorie restriction, they have uh, non-human primate studies. So... <laughs> I would say that's a very big step up. Right. But those studies are also very complex to interpret and kind of, I think they were a bit small because primates are so expensive to keep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, that that's actually like the uh, very funny thing about the, I don't know if you're familiar with the NIA versus the Wisconsin primate, uh, non-human primate studies, but Um, when they did like a comparison between the two studies, uh, they kind of dismissed one aspect of it, which was how the monkeys were fed, essentially. So Wisconsin, 
trying to mimic um, like a once a day fed CR mouse in terms of they had, uh, they were fed once and had a little snack and all, any food that was remaining was removed by the end of the day for these monkeys. Whereas the NIA monkeys, if they had any food left over, um, they would just leave the food overnight. And essentially these two studies, one said CR doesn't work in non-human primates and the other one works. So it, it made me kind of a question, maybe you really do need that once a day eating schedule, even in non-human primates to have a lifespan extension. So the Wisconsin cohort with one day feeding did better. Is that correct? Yeah, they actually had a lifespan extension. The NIA study said uh, calorie-restricted uh, rhesus macaques did not have uh, increased lifespan extension. But obviously there are other factors too, like there were different diets. Um, um, the cohort were very diverse in the NIA compared to Wisconsin and all these factors contribute to it. But it was very interesting for me to hear that the Wisconsin one was like, fed kind of similar to um, a CR mouse. So for, for, the, for those who are not familiar with those studies, there are like two important calorie restriction studies in rhesus monkeys, right? One is in Wisconsin, one is in, in the NIA. Yes. Right. Um, I, have, um, I have to ask you something controversial as well, um, just because the, you reminded me of my recent discussion with Rich Miller, right? You make a valid argument that using black six mice um, is a good idea because we already know them so well, but he would argue that they're of course inbred and they might have idiosyncratic issues, health issues, and he prefers his UM hat free. What would you say? Is this valid as well? And that I would agree that that's valid as well. I mean, every model has a limitation, right? Um, the limitation with HET is now you need crazy amount of different types of statistics and animals, um, which I would say is very hard for a lot of labs to conduct in terms of doing these studies. Um, you just have to increase the numbers exponentially when you work with heterogeneous mice. But I agree in terms of, yes, if you want to make this a more relevant study to humans <laughs> using those mice, great. Um, B6 is just much easier to do um, in context of doing all of these studies. You don't need as many numbers. Um, the statistics are easier to conduct. And um, yeah, and we know the genetic makeup of them. <laughs> so we could kind of understand what's happening in, in, in these mice. Yeah, so those heterogeneous mice will be also, I guess, more expensive to acquire, which is important when you have hundreds, hundreds of mice. Yeah, I, I know some people just breed them, um, but breeding takes time too, so that costs money too. And so, um, and just genotyping all of them, um, all of these aspects for heterogeneous mice, uh, they're quite costly, um, but are they... They're definitely useful. <laughs> I know some some groups have found um, spectacular things from using heterogeneous mice. So it's just, are we able to do it? <laughs> it's a lot about trade-offs of different models, as you say. Yeah. I'm now much more open-minded about different models. I used to dismiss everything that was not 
mouse research back in the day. Now I, I love all the models. Yeah, every model has something to offer. <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, so we talked a lot about um, fasting or time-restricted feeding and caloric restriction. And actually, I wanted to ask you some other questions in the beginning, but then we jumped straight into, into fasting and such. So maybe we have now um, a bit of time to, to talk about these less technical things. Just curious to get your opinion, what would be like the biggest breakthroughs for you in our field? Breakthrough from our field? Oh, man. There's so many things going on right now. Um, oh, so many great research that comes out. I would say the main way to like make a breakthrough in our field would be technology, technology to observe some of these things. So like live mouse imaging um, in terms of what's happening inside while the mouse is still alive. That's a, a huge limitation in some of the things I'm seeing. Um, the only way I could see some other things that's happening, like the best way would be probably like flux omics to the extent of understanding metabolism in a dynamic way. But that that's the main difficulty, right? Um, in terms of even just dietary studies, we collect blood at one single time point. But um, as many people know, metabolism is very dynamic throughout the day. It could go up and down. So just, just getting that one time point is just taking like a photo of one period of time within a 24-hour day. So if we could capture that, um, I think that would be one of the biggest breakthrough in terms of help speed things up into understanding some of the mechanisms in the aging field. So is that what, what you would do if I gave you a million dollars to do research or do you have any other ideas? Um, I mean, for me, so that would be a very like an engineer question in the sense of uh, biological engineer, um, which I have no expertise in. Um, Mia, I'm more interested in just understanding feeding behavior. Um, I guess that's my ultimate goal uh, with what we have is uh, would, you know, is this habitual eating pattern important to calorie restriction or like the time component? Is that important? Um, really getting to all, all the nitty gritties of an experimental protocol. I want to kind of make something more standardized, I guess, in terms of so we could have more reproducible research out there and be all agree that this is where it's going. Right now, it's like kind of like all over the place and everyone has great ideas. It's just that they're capturing either like the wrong time or I guess there's no real wrong time, but like different times and um, they're using different feeding protocols and we're all like arguing against each other saying, no, this is wrong. That's right. Um, <laughs> what I want is more of understanding there are variables, um, scientists acknowledging that there are variables um, through my research. And then um, hopefully that opens up a new avenue on how to approach these questions. And hopefully eventually some application to human health and so we can extend healthy human lifespan with what you find or others find. Yeah. 
Another question that is kind of on my mind, because I was recently talking to people about it, um, is like the working conditions in science, so totally different topic. Um, people always say, of course, in academia, you make less money than in industry. But I also read articles recently that PhD students make less money than the poverty line. Is How is it really? Like in the US, do you have... Oh, that, that's a very... <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, yeah. So it's very context dependent, I guess. Yes, PhD students don't make a lot of money. But I would say uh, students who live in areas like the East Coast or West Coast have a harder time just because of the expense of living there. So like San Francisco, it's extremely expensive to live there. So a student, a grad student living there, obviously they're not, <laughs> they're not being able to live at the, like a livable wage with their graduate student stipend. Um, now, if you go to the middle of nowhere America, that stipend gets you far. <laughs> so it's it's very dependent on regions. Unfortunately, a lot of great schools are in these coast areas. So I do think it needs to be adjusted based on location. Um, and then, you know, for uh, postdocs, uh, it's been a very slow increase in terms of um, the wage. So, I mean, the argument is if you're passionate about, passionate about science, uh, money shouldn't matter to you. Yes, <laughs> to a certain extent, un unless you're like begging on the streets. Um, but, I mean, if you think about it, the people with PhDs, they're some of the most skilled people um, in the world <laughs> and um, they've devoted quite a bit of time. And so essentially uh, it seems like they, they feel underappreciated in terms of what they're getting paid. <laughs> so I think that's, that's what the issue is. It's like, they don't feel appreciated. I totally agree. I think we all love doing research and we might even do it in our free time. But the thing yeah. is, it's a bit about pride and appreciation. You feel like not valued if you get paid like 50% below the market rate, right? So, yeah, there definitely needs to be a change or, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's a major postdoc shortage in America. Like every, every PI talk I talk to, they're like, I can't find a postdoc. I'm like, well... If you just pay them more, you can find a postdoc. And, you know, one of my friends actually said, you know, I don't have to get paid a lot, but if I could just get paid even a little bit more, I would have stayed. But, you know, it's just like, why do this? Like, why do you, why would you keep doing this for years and years just to like feel underappreciated the whole time? <laughs> do you think there are any viable solutions on a personal or political level? I think that I think it's like a systemic change. So like one lab can't just change it in terms of like a PI saying, oh, I'll pay more for the postdoc because I mean, most PIs do want to pay more for them. It's just that now there's an institutional problem where it's like, oh, you can't pay them more than this amount because we made a cap. So there's that problem. Um, 
if the institution allows for the increase, now the PI has a problem too because he's not getting the grant funding that uh, <laughs> to pay for these people because NIH or any other grant funding hasn't like met up with um, the standards of the costs that it um, that it essentially costs to do some of the research now. Um, like if you think about it, most people back in the day didn't even have to consider females as a variable, <laughs> but now you've doubled the mouse work um, adding females in there, but the cost, they give you essentially the same amount for your grant. So um, that hasn't been accounted for. So I guess in terms, it would have to be everything needs to change, like at the government level, at the institution level, the PI, <laughs> just everything um it can't just be one area that changes yeah and i think it would be beneficial across the fields because then we could keep better talent in science and do better research if we paid more yeah um and i think that's how you make progress um you could develop more for preventative care instead of just i guess catastrophic events <laughs> and um i mean one of the greatest thing I saw was like during the COVID pandemic where everyone got together, solved a problem almost, like if you think about it, it's like instantly in terms of the scientific timeline, <laughs> like um, that's amazing. And if we could do that for every single disease, imagine like how much progress we could have made if like the government had full support in that one type of research. <laughs> yes. And I don't want to be too pessimistic here, right? I think the system could be much better, but it works and it delivers. And we just, we have to make it better. And that's also why I like kind of the concept of the longevity dividend, because I think people can get behind the idea that there's a really big payoff if you invest in aging research. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, um, I always like try to tell people who, who don't study um, any aging research, it's like, Aging is like the number one risk factor for so many diseases. Just target aging and you could get rid of so many diseases. And, um, but that gets to the point of like, how, how do you really define aging? <laughs> like, because it's not really a aging, you can't say it's a disease. It's more like a condition. So um, how would you target that? That I'm, to this day, I haven't really been able to answer that <laughs> to anybody. It's a very uh, hard question to answer, but I mean, if we could really target it, um, I think it, it would have tremendous benefit worldwide. But what do you think stops people from believing that we can target it? Will, will they say to you, well, you've just shown this in mice, we don't know it works in humans, or what, what are the arguments against it? Well, um, I mean, the one of the main arguments is um, aging is a natural process in life, you know, uh, which I totally agree to a, there's a, there's some, something happening that's saying, oh, we need to get rid of this organism, <laughs> um, or we would have overpopulation and all those things. But, um, what I'm truly aiming for is, okay, We've already like extended lifespan with modern medicine. Like I, I believe we've we've gotten there in terms of extension of lifespan. Can we do better? Probably. But um, now there is a decline uh, that happens when you age. So 
can we actually just get rid of the decline and live a happy life until the part where you um, leave this world. So I think there's like a disconnect in that part because a lot of people think aging research is just about living forever. From like the general public that I've talked to, they they believe we're trying to cure like the uh, the living forever aspect of it, which I always tell them, no, that's not really true. Um, I think a lot of people, what their ultimate goal is to just like have healthier humans <laughs> until uh, until the end of their life. I, I like what you mentioned about uh, the people arguing it's natural. I also encountered this a lot and I think it's a limiting belief for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's existed all throughout everyone's life, right? <laughs> Forever and ever since the existence of humans or any animals that it's a natural process that you eventually die. But um, I guess, do people really need to die um, like a slow, painful death of just because they have cancer? Um, <laughs> Or do people need to waste away because they have sarcopenia? Um, all of these, I think we could address in terms of, you know, the ultimate goal for aging. Just let's, let's have a healthy life. <laughs> I totally agree. Health is essential. But I also like to push back a little against the over-focus on health and so-called health span. Maybe personally I'm radical or not, but I think if people realize that health and lifespan go together hand in hand usually they do want to live longer and healthier at the same time and i think it's nice to focus on both personally yeah i i focus more on health because i grew up with a grandma <laughs> and um she often i mean like i mean she was really healthy for her age she's like 93 now but like at a certain point, she started to have like rapid decline in terms of like being physically well off. So I think she's genetically predisposed to live a long life, but it hasn't been, it's been like not healthy. So she, she struggles with arthritis. She struggles with like um, digestive problems, high blood pressure and all of those things. And so like, People who are predisposed to live a long life probably, I don't know, um, sometimes have to deal with health issues for like a decade or two while they're living this life. So that's why I emphasize more on health. And um, for the longevity aspect, I kind of go back and forth with, oh, do we really need to um, like have a maximum lifespan? I guess, like, do does everyone need to live 150 years old? Or are they satisfied with just living up to 80 or 90? So, um, I mean, I, I agree. Uh, living for a long time is great. I think the opportunity to live with your family um, for a long period of time is great, too. But yeah, my focus more in terms of how I see aging in general is that if we emphasize the healthy aspect of it, because I'm sure everyone has someone in their life who's aged and unhealthy is greater than someone who knows someone who's lived a long life. And mm -hmm. I guess just, I would, I would say 
not a lot of people know someone who's lived a very long, long time. So that's why I emphasize that uh, healthy health part. So and you and when you're healthy, I guess that goes hand in hand, like you said, they live longer. <laughs> I mean, of course, in the best case, we would give people the choice. So the freedom to choose how long they want to live. And of course, we cannot do this. But I guess philosophically, that would be kind of yeah. reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> Not everyone wants to live for a very long time, right? But some people do. And it's individual. Yeah. And mm, that brings me to one interesting question. Um, how long would you like to live? Like if you, I don't know, had a choice. <laughs> I'm actually, you know, I think I... I guess the way it's going now in terms of healthy aging, I, I don't want to live to an age where I feel like I'm incapable of taking care of myself, <laughs> which I see quite a bit in the elderly population. They eventually reach an age where they're not able to take care of themselves. Um, what age will that happen for me? I'm not quite sure, <laughs> but um I, I wouldn't say I, I want to live over a hundred years old. Um, that's I've never really thought about like living for a long time. Just like, I think I would be just happy just being satisfied <laughs> with what I've done and then peacefully going. <laughs> right. I, I can see that living a healthy and fulfilled life is, I guess, central to most people. Yeah. And I just wish people and funders would realize that we can deliver this or we're, we're positioned to deliver this. Yeah. Okay. It was great talking to you. I'm just wondering, um, is there anyone else you would like to see on the podcast in the future? Oh, um, I'll have to get back to you on that. I'm, I'm so horrible with names, but I have people's faces in mind. So um, I, I feel like um, one person that, you know, I kind of admire uh, who I met in like age meetings is Mitchell Lee from, he used to work in Matt Caberlin's lab. Um, he started this whole new company. So, I mean, he would bring the, that side of aging research into this. So um, there's him. Um, I'll probably get back to you with like a few other names um, that I could think of, but I mean, there's like a lot of great research out there that's really targeting this. So <laughs> Awesome. I will keep that in mind. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it was good. I think we did well. It was fun. On that, I'm, I'm so horrible with names, but I have people's faces in mind. So um, I, I feel like um, one person that, you know, I kind of admire uh, who I met in like age meetings is Mitchell Lee from he used to work in Matt Caberlin's lab. Um, he started this whole new company. So, I mean, he would bring the that side of aging research into this. So um, there's him. Um, I'll probably get back to you with like a few other names um, that I could think of. But I mean, there's like a lot of great research out there that's really targeting this. So <laughs> awesome. I will keep that in mind. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it was good. I think we did well. It was fun. Before I talk about anything else, I have to add a small correction to the podcast. I said that the mice are fasted at night in the recent study of circadian rhythms and aging, but it is a bit more complicated than that. This is not correct. 
It was in one of the groups that the mice received food at the beginning of the dark period. And if they are under a standard caloric restriction regime, then they will quickly finish the food and then fast for the rest of the night. But there are also several other groups in the paper making it a bit more complicated. And I highly recommend for you to check it out. I will put the reference in the show notes. Okay, having clarified that, let us talk about some other exciting things we discussed in the podcast. So first point, how does the public think about aging research? And as Heidi mentioned, when you talk to people, they often mistakenly think that we're trying to, you know, aging research is about living forever. However, it is about extending health and lifespan together, having more good years. And of course, some of us want to live for a very long time, but it is not the major focus, or at least not the sole driver for aging research. And to this day, I do not know a sound strategy of communicating the importance of aging research to the general public so as not to be misunderstood. Second point, and this might be going off topic a bit, but I also like the comment when Heidi said, I kind of see fasting like how we sleep. So perhaps we can say in a way it is a time to regenerate or detox. While there is an element of popular science here, it actually seems to be true in a broad sense. Detoxification is a real thing. The liver does detoxify different foreign substances by activating them chemically, so-called phase one metabolism, and conjugating them to different compounds, making them excretable in urine. This process is strongly promoted by the nerve two signaling pathway, which is one of the canonical targets activated by calorie restriction. Of course, to what extent this will work with fasting is not entirely clear, but it probably will. And as a bit of a nerve 2 researcher, I always find it funny how much truth there is in the whole detoxification paradigm. It is very clear that a lot of polyphenols and stuff you can buy as supplements do act as mild stressors that induce liver nerve 2 and thereby can promote detoxification of substances, including carcinogens. Whether this will ultimately lower cancer rates in humans is not clear, but it is certainly a highly plausible mechanism supported by extensive body of research in animals. So there's a lot more meat to detoxification than there is to the whole antioxidant idea. There is something worthwhile there. Third point, I'm still baffled by her paper and why the diluted caloric restriction diet mice she studied did so poorly. It almost makes me think, and this is pure speculation, that the act of chewing and consuming a certain volume of food is important for nutrient sensing and the effect of caloric restriction. So let's say you consume a high volume of diet, this might be sensed as having consumed like a real and full meal, thereby preventing the mice from entering a caloric restriction state. I really hope that people will look into this in more detail. Fourth point, we discussed the potential shortcoming of heterogeneous head-free mice that are probably the gold standard for lifespan studies by now. But if they are more heterogeneous, then they will require larger sample sizes, which will make the studies more expensive. And researchers always have a problem with cash. We don't have a lot of money. And together with the cost of buying the mice, this is for sure an obstacle to running lifespan studies with the head-free mice. While I'm assuming this is a significant factor, I have not actually seen the numbers myself or made the calculations. We cannot assume that the sample sizes of the ITP study are representative since they intentionally choose to have very large sample sizes and it may be possible to run a smaller cheaper study with head-free mice. 
As for the cost of the mice, a quick look at the webpage of Jackson Laboratories, one of the few places actually offering hat-free mice, shows that they are 10 to 20% more expensive per animal. That is significant, but not tragic. It would be really cool to learn more about the sample size issue and how much cost it would contribute for those who intend to run studies with hat-free mice. So that's all for now. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed my random comments at the end of the podcast.